Hello, and welcome to another episode of Desert Rain Community Radio. Our typical thank yous, Diego at Recording Moving Studios. Shout out to Star City Studio. Uh, Those drums in the background are thanks to Monk Drums. You can check them out, obviously, at monkdrums.com. Today, on our episode, we will be discussing the Bible. Uh, We focus on the Christian text, uh, commonly known as the New Testament. We do uh, touch on the the relevance of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, However, we do delve into the New Testament, um, sort of how to how to start getting uh, some ideas on how to maybe get started studying it, um, different ways to look at it. And uh, we finish off with um, a practice called Lectio Divina. So thank you once again for listening. You can check out more of David Morrison's uh, thoughts and writings at theruin.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please... uh, Share it with a friend, tell a friend about it, and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And let's get into it. David Morrison. Hello from the COVID bunker. The COVID lockdown bunker here in Chaparral, New Mexico. Uh, How are you doing tonight? All right. It's a beautiful evening. We're here today. Our topic is uh, we're going to cover it in one hour and hit every point about it, about the Bible. The Bible. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm just joking. So uh, what, what is the Bible? If you could give oh us a, sort of a big, a big picture overview. It's a collection of sacred verse, what we deem as sacred, coming from Judaism in, in the span of you know, many years, centuries. Right. And and then in the Christian, it's the early writings of the early church mm-hmm. as far as what we call the New Testament. And and we, it sometimes is referred to as a book, but it's actually a library of books. It's a library. It's a collection. Right. And in both the Hebrew scriptures and... And then the later, the much Testament. later, yeah, Christian mm-hmm. scriptures. So, and uh, I, I guess what... Uh, with that being said, uh, this evening would really love to focus on the New Testament, what it means, what it, what it's meant for your prayer life, your um, spiritual life, your life as a pastor. Um, and I, we'll touch on the the Hebrew scriptures, but I like to leave those for the the rabbis and the Hebrews. Yeah, and the Gentiles. Yeah, the experts. Instead of a bunch of Gentiles like us. (laughs) So, um, so yeah. So, if you just want to maybe give us a background of why the Hebrew Scriptures are important to understanding the New Testament as we understand it. Yeah, because without the story of the Jews and without the Jewish Scriptures, there's no Christianity. Really, Christianity is completely indebted to the Jewish context and story. So you can't really intellectually, you can't be intellectually honest and divorce Jesus Christ from Judaism. Well, I know it makes some people, or in conversations I've had, make people uncomfortable when you point out that Jesus 
was in fact Jewish yeah, that he wasn't and not a Christian. Or Southern Baptist, yeah. Right. He wasn't an American evangelical. <laughs> With blonde hair and blue he eyes. Did, yeah, he did not wear <laughs> an American flag pin on his lapel. <laughs> so, no. Um, and so with that being said, what, what, um, as we understand the idea of, of Jesus Christ for, for a a Jewish man living at the time that Jesus would have been here, what, what would their understanding of, of a, um, of the coming of God be and sort of juxtapose what they were quote unquote expecting, or they're still expecting, I suppose, in their Jew- Jewish religion versus what Jesus Christ has yeah. represented. Well, you know, and I, I'm not a, I'm not a professional scholar, and right. I, mean, I don't play <laughs> one on television. <laughs> this either. is just your understanding. Yeah. So from my home brewed Christianity, so to speak, uh, you know, the, the, there have been efforts, particularly in the early 20th century, by uh, Albert Schweitzer, the theologian, to find the historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that was a massive study. And he ended up concluding uh, that when you try to do that, you end up just finding who you are. So if you're mm-hmm. a communist, then Jesus is a communist. If you're a capitalist, then you find capitalist Jesus. And so he basically said to hell with this. And he went off uh, to uh, Africa and became a doctor, a medical doctor. And really? Helped a lot of people. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> started doing the things that Jesus would be doing rather than so, so the study was kind of put to rest for a couple of decades. And then in the early 80s, from what I understand, scholars uh, began to conclude that's true. You can't find the historical Jesus in, in the sense of from modernism's perspective, hmm. uh, as, as modernism would describe An history and how you conduct mm-hmm. that. But you can find a composite of Jesus. In other words, Jesus was a first century Palestinian Jew. Mm-hmm. And there are sources where you can find how did a first century Palestinian Jew see the world? Okay. What was their experience? Right. And so that's what was their the, outlook on life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the last 10 years, there's been a lot of, a lot of books have been published at a popular level and scholarly level mm. of, of coming up with a, the context of Palestine mm-hmm. in the first century. And so, so it's very much connected to Judaism in that, right. in that sense. And and why it'll always be connected to yeah. Judaism. You can't you can't parse the two. Well, I guess maybe some people try to, but like you said, or, yeah, or to be intellectually honest about it. Yeah, and it's paradoxical because you have the Gentile question. Mm-hmm. And that was the biggest argument in the early church was is is this covenant for the outside Gentiles, mm-hmm. or is this just for the Jews? And you see that argument playing out in. in the Apostle Paul's letters and Acts. And um, and so there's definitely a, gent- you know, the, we, we can't help it. The church became mm-hmm. Gentile as well. Right. And with that Gentile, particularly in, in um, Greece and Turkey and the, that whole area, the, the uh, mystery religions of the time uh, have had a, a profound effect on what Christianity developed to mm-hmm. become uh, in, you know, what we'd call the, the uh, Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox now, right? And and I know I know one thing that's helped sort of inform my uh, my belief in Christianity or my sort of understanding of Christianity was uh, uh, I would go to a a Torah study, 
and uh, Rabbi Carroll, shout out to him in Las Cruces. Hey, uh, he uh, he led it, and well, he didn't so much. He did lead it because he was a rabbi, but there was a lot of very informative people there, um, and it was probably two thirds people that were Jewish, and probably like a third of us that oh. were Gentile, so to speak. And it was always just a really interesting um, discussion. Um, and it was just it was from someone that was trying to learn more about the Bible in general. Uh, it was always very informative in that way. And, and it was, uh, it still is curious to me that more Christians don't seek that sort of study, so to speak. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. Right. And Historically, there's really a, culturally, there's a reason for that. Yeah. And we don't have to get into that yeah. today, but, um, so sort of shifting gears and, and, um, today, after your walk in Christianity, uh, through Catholicism, being a pastor, um, and then spending time here at Desert Rain, I, I would love to sort of pick your brain of like, how do you approach the Bible today? Um, yeah, it's, as a text. Well, let me start with the beginning. I mean, the first time I ever cracked the Bible mm-hmm. open, it was one of those family Douay version Bibles, Catholic <laughs> yep. Bibles with the. Uh, the uh, gender-neutral Jesus painting illustrations. Uh, <laughs> the really nice cover. Yeah, Did yeah. Did you have the really nice cover? All you know, I think it came with a set with the Baltimore Catechism. Ooh. And, and uh, which would show illustrations of of uh, rich people going to uh, the road to perdition. They're going to hell. Oh, interesting. And, and the families are all going to heaven. Going, and Holding yeah. hands and skipping into heaven. And, and it wasn't a good experience for me. I was maybe 10, 11. I cracked it open. Uh, like it, like an idiot. I read Revelation first. <laughs> I did that in and high it school. Scared too, the hell you, out of me. Yeah, that's like, you mentioned yeah. that. I was like, I hope this God doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was not a good experience. And I thought this God wants to kill me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so it wasn't it wasn't that great until I went to catechism class in high school and. So you might teachers. have said it, but I, I I missed it. How old were you? About ten or eleven okay. years old. Yeah. And yeah, uh, Revelation is not the place to start. For yeah, exactly. The end of the world's coming, uh, and so 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 there was that, and and then and then in the Catholic experience, at least at that time, I think since then they've they've really doubled down on Bible studies and mm. trying to encourage people to read the Bible. And and but in the eighties. Uh, it was more. Uh, you you heard the scriptures just read liturgically at mass. Yeah, that's in growing up in the nineties. Yeah, it was the same way in the nineties for me. And then in catechism, I was taught doctrines mm-hmm. with scriptures backing up those doctrines. Okay. So there was a bias first, and then scripture. So so when I joined the the freewheeling charismatic Pentecostal folks, and that happened to you in high school. Yeah, in high school, yeah. about sixteen. Um, if you want to hear more about that, check out our first episode. Hey, oh, it's <laughs> <laughs> a callback, baby. <laughs> Little plug. Uh, yeah. And so then, so then the emphasis became on reading the Bible for yourself to hear from God, to hear from the Holy Spirit. Um, a lot of assumptions, uh, the, the, the Bible is, has no errors in it. And it's this magic mm. book almost, uh, it, uh, magic book of perfection. Yeah. So to speak. And, and so. So there's a lot of that, but I just started reading it then and, and, and read it through and just 
continuous reading since then. Did you when you first when you first started reading it? Did you have any? Did you have like a mentor to read it with, or like other books, like study guides? Like what did that look like? Yeah, I used the basic ones that you'd find. Yeah, Bible guides. Okay. Uh, most of them are conservative in nature. Right. Looking back now, when you don't see your conservative or liberal bias, then then you don't. You know. Uh, you have to see that first before you can think critically. Well, but even at the time you were in high school, so pro- you, politics weren't probably the first thing on your mind. No, yeah, I don't mean, uh, I mean, uh, conservative view of the scriptures as opposed to a liberal, uh, you know, the fundamentalist mm. versus the liberal okay. argument in, in church history, particularly in America. Um, and so, so yeah, so it was a more of a literalist view. Mm. Um, you know, and they deal with that in, in catechism and Sunday school, you know, well, how did Noah get all the animals on the ark? You know, well, God might've shrunk them, you know, kind of thing. So you just end up with this magical thinking anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I wasn't, but by 17, 16, I wasn't reading it for that purpose. I was reading it for God to speak personally to me. Okay. And, and I was fortunate enough to have a, a community with me, a church and, pastoral leadership um, that could guide me through it and and uh, tell me what to think. Uh, no. <laughs> Brainwash you? Yeah. I'm just joking. Help me ask more questions. And, and, our, and our pastor was really good at that. Uh, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he, he just encouraged the reading and asking the questions, mm. you know, and not, you know, pushing his agenda on Which me I, in that I, sense. I, I th- from things people I've talked to and things I've read, it's usually the opposite, right? Yeah, yeah. They, so it's like they're going to indoctrinate you. And so, you know, so that was, you know, and it was a refreshing time. Uh, I was particularly drawn, and still am. I still go to those texts, um, Paul's uh, letters mm-hmm. to the Philippians, the Ephesians, and the Colossians, those three little books. Probably read them daily at that time. Okay. Um, Never was a big fan of Romans. Um, I would read it and I would think we're all just pretending we understand what he's saying. <laughs> what he's but he didn't to. even understand what he was saying. So it wasn't until I took some courses and read some books later that I had more of an appreciation. Mm. And then, of course, the Gospels and, and reading those stories. So that, that was my early experience with, with the Scripture. So it, was, so it was more of a devotional approach mm-hmm. to the Bible. You wanted the, the goal was to have the Holy Spirit speak to you through the, the Bible through the script through mm-hmm. scripture reading. Um, there is a scholarly approach that you can take, uh, which I did later when I had more time mm-hmm. and when I had to do sermons. Uh, I wanted to, you know, not be a total idiot. I was an idiot, but not a total idiot, you know. <laughs> no, no, at least a couple of Yeah, I read some commentaries, that. read some. I, I don't subscribe. I do have friends that say, uh, th- and they think it's uh, a spiritual thing. They're very, uh, proud of the fact that they don't read any contextual materials or any commentaries at all. They, it's just the Bible itself and them in this bubble. And it's amazing how they come to the same conclusions as the televangelists uh, and, the, and the ones seeking power and money and wealth. Uh, it's, yeah, so crazy. And, and so... Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't even know to, where to start with that. But to back up to the devotional aspect of it that that uh, you embraced early on, how many years do you th- w- was it that you engaged 
like that that was your your relationship with the Bible? Yeah, it was it was the probably fairly traditional daily Bible reading. But for how many years? Oh, uh, well, up until now. Uh, you, you, you yeah. can, you've continued to do yeah. that sort of devotional type. So from 17 to 52. Yeah. Okay. Um, but different, yeah, different styles, different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one-year Bible, I was a big fan of that in my early years. Okay. Um, and just, just read through it. And I, and I guess to sort of go, go back also, <clears throat> uh, excuse me. It's allergy season. Yeah, <laughs> hit me for a second. Um, to go back to the commentaries, uh, w- w- which commentaries throughout your lifetime have been uh, seemingly the most informative or the most helpful? Oh, that's a hard one. Uh, I, I've used one set. I used one set for many years during sermon preparation. Um, I forget the name of oh, it. Okay. F.F. Yeah. F. Bruce, okay. who would be considered a conservative uh-huh. uh, Bible scholar, uh, was the editor. Mm. I think it was the—I can't even remember. Yeah, it okay. escapes me now. Uh, then when I took a more liturgical uh, way, there was a set by a, a Catholic scholar who would string them together for the readings— of okay. mass and his main theme was the inclusiveness of Jesus. He always saw that in the in the gospel reading and that that really began to shape my thinking in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um and then several courses. So so when we came out here to Desert Rain, that's when I had more time on my hands and I and I decided to tackle a lot of the big questions that I just would brush over. Uh what does the Bible really say about homosexuality? Those kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. And uh and so that led me to take several courses and and reading and discussion and that whole thing yeah, with a, people. A deeper dive. Yeah, so the scholarly. So I moved from a devotional uh, and added the scholarly at that point because yeah, I had more time mm-hmm. to do that. And uh, I know one of the things uh, you and I have talked to talked about uh, not on the not here on the podcast, but just amongst each other. Um, it's sort of the four lenses that, oh, yeah. that uh, you experience uh, the Bible through. Uh, maybe we can uh, sure. go on that. And and I know the the first one being experience. Uh, not that there's not that they're really in any particular order. Yeah. But just starting with one being experience. Yeah. What uh, so scripture uh, experience or uh, reasoning. reasoning and tradition and tradition. Yeah. And, that, and that's traditionally called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Wesley, John Wesley, the Methodist founder, didn't come up with it. It was already in existence before, but it's a Protestant way. I mean, and early church fathers had other levels of reading, even Philo, the, the Jewish scholar. <clears throat> and the, the Jewish tradition has always had these different levels. There's allegorical, there's uh, mystical, there's lawful, you know, all moral right. levels. And so, yeah, I, I kind of settled on those four because it's simple. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, yeah, so, so what, what is our authority? Where do we begin? Yeah. Uh, how do we form a worldview? And, and, and I think uh, it's a working model for me. Scripture, personal experience, the experience of a community, uh, reasoning or science. Science is a good thing. 
uh, yeah. these days. <laughs> and, every, every day. And, and tradition, yeah. What did other, you know, we have a 2,000-year tradition in, in Christianity alone, and then, and then many, you know, thousands of years of Judaism as well. And then the voices of other religions as well, the perennial tradition uh, in Buddhism and, and Hinduism and, and Islam. So, And even tradition within the Christian tradition, if you think about the differences in the Eastern Orthodox, oh, yeah, the it's Catholic. A, it's the a lifelong study. Right. You'll never, you'll never get through it. <laughs> so, so maybe we could pick apart each one of these in the sense of like you could give um, – sort of a concrete example. So like how, how would, how is it your personal experience in life? If you can think of a specific time um, informed or shaped sort of your, your outlook on, on the Bible. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's, I think where you're born, your place and your, and the, and the experiences that you've had, form your bias and right. your and your worldview and that's where you start and you have to be honest about those those things I, I start with a group of assumptions pre-assumptions if you will mm -hmm. while I read that I filter the Bible through and I'm aware of those so what, what could you give us an um, example of one of those one would be uh and and I and I also agree the, the skeptics out there would would say this is magical thinking and I would concede this. I would say that uh, the universe was created by a loving creator, mm. and that love is the ultimate say and and force, if you will, mm -hmm. of, of the of the universe. I start there, right? And so uh, that's that's an assumption that I'm starting with, yeah. um, and that this God uh, has a preference uh, for the vulnerable, for those at the margin. And for uh, humility, mm -hmm. I start with that uh, assumption, and for for different reasons because I've seen it in my experience that that's true. Uh, the Jewish and Christian traditions uh, definitely are all about uh, God standing up for the marginalized, the mm -hmm. underdog. Um, you see it in Christian tradition, and I don't know if science would back me up on that, but I don't know. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, the power of the universe goes small, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and I know for me, it, it's not quite the same, but when I first started uh, re-engaging, I guess would be a good word, with Christianity after growing up Catholic and sort of walking away with it was this um, uh, idea or assumption that uh, specifically Catholic, because that was really all I had, but sort of Christian, I uh, umbrellaed it out to all Christianity, you know, that, oh, they, those were bad people mm. and, the, and the things that they believed I didn't agree with. So going in with those assumptions and reading through uh, the Gospels specifically, I read the four Gospels uh, about a decade ago and was just totally blown away about what was actually being said in the yeah, gospel, just how radical they are, versus sort of what was being preached on a typical Sunday in, yeah. in any church in in America, and so that sort of um, they don't line up. No, they're not as, saying it nicely, <laughs> as John Wimber used to say, "That dog don't hunt." <laughs> uh, 
so yeah so so maybe the next one to sort of look at uh you know you talked about the magical thinking to an extent but you know this idea of uh, bringing in reason to our uh our spiritual life our our biblical study um things of that nature if you could give a an instance where sort of your reason has or i mean not your reason right but right. just the i the something in science or whatever uh i i think it goes very personal i think it's not just a an objective okay far away thing i think uh I had I had assumptions in my younger days, uh, as many people do, that that uh, every step of your life is is guarded, if you will, or directed by God, and that God knows the future and is controlling everything. And so it would be preordained. And it's preordained okay. uh, in that sense. Uh, and you know, and that's a common phrase: God is in control. Mm-hmm. God is on it. Jesus is still on the throne. Uh, and that just didn't match up with, with, uh, my experience of, uh, burying a brother for, through a tragic accident at the age of 23. Um, were you 23 or was he, I was 23, he was okay. 21. Right. And, and so I had to look at the universe differently and then chaos theory came into mind and then, and then just observing the, the, uh, natural order of things it's a it's a pretty chaotic universe um there's a lot of chance and 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 there are no guarantees and life really is fragile and those aren't things that people want to look at you know and scary yeah just i mean there's a uh it's not called a volcano but uh i forgot the name of it but it's in yellowstone it's an underground volcano uh, that is so huge that if it blew, mm-hmm. all of North America would be instantly yeah. destroyed. And then within a week, the rest of the planet would be completely annihilated. That's a fact. That's a mm-hmm. reason. That's a scientific fact. Uh, it didn't blow yesterday. So, and it hasn't blown yet today. So, what are you going to do with your life? You got a chance. You know, there are asteroids. You know, you hear these that was stories all the time. They come way too close for comfort. Yeah. And ask the dinosaurs. Uh, yeah. You know, um, and then just watch the news, how fragile and how uh, vulnerable life really is mm-hmm. and how much chance there is. And yet God, you have to search for God. Uh, the, you have to search for the signal in the noise. Uh, there's still faith. a small voice in the chaos. Yeah, and have faith in that small yeah. signal. So I, it's different from saying, and I know some people say that, you know, well, God is in control uh, even in the chaos. I, I, I get that. But you have to acknowledge the chaos. You well, have to I acknowledge th- that. I think for me, God is is my comfort in the chaos. Exactly. My connection, my faith in that in that uh, higher power, that being, um, because there is chaos. And yeah, um, you know, I, I I think you and I have discussed this hypothesis, but you know, I've, I've meditated on it on and off. But just the Book of Job, instead of it. God and Satan playing parlor games yeah. with Job. It's it's actually more of a a commentary on order and chaos that exactly is just is. happening in the world on a moment to moment basis. And that's another. That's a great example of scholarship versus devotional. So so a, a devotional approach mm-hmm. to scripture. Yeah, go ahead. Because the Jews have always uh, seen the Book of Job as a divine comedy. 
and not as a this is yeah, this is the you better watch out. Yeah, this God is a real <laughs> bastard in this. Uh, he's not a trustworthy God. Uh, he's a trickster. You know, he's just playing games with you. Uh, and so, so again, yeah, it's it's the Jews trying to, in literature, uh, trying to uh, deal with with chaos and order. It's exactly what it is, and and having a good laugh at it mm-hmm. as well. Which is um, one of the many gifts of the Jews, the the comedy and uh, in the midst of great suffering, you know. And mm-hmm. So I yeah, respect they, that. Well, and they're definitely experts on having to overcome those great tragedies yeah. and and you know live through them. Yeah, Mel Brooks is a great Jewish theologian. Mm. So, so uh, sort of springboarding off that idea of of Judaism in general. Um, but just the importance of, of tradition within, within this, uh, this idea of, of connecting yeah. biblically and, and what's your experience having encountered yeah. a handful of traditions? Well, it's a response really to the Protestant trajectory, which was uh, sola scriptura, which is only the Bible and, and, and the Bible only. And, and then it got funneled down through the last 500 years of all you need is this book called the Bible. Mm. And if you have that book, you don't need church. You don't need community. You don't need anything else. It'll tell you, it'll tell you all the answers to your life, which is just not true. Yeah, uh, there's no, it's irresponsible there's... for people to say that. But that's the popular, uh, you know, saying these days, you know, well, and it's, it's either all the word of God or none of it's the word of God. You know, these this dualistic all or nothing view is, is the popular view of the day. And it's it's just it's uh, immature and it's not serving us well. And it's uh, weaponized morality is what it's done. Yeah, it's definitely done that. And it's funny, too, because even in the recovery world with the book Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll get certain people that will. Latch on to the book. You could take any problem. You could come up with any any conundrum, any problem, yeah. and take it to them. And be like, oh, well, just it, read the book. It's it, yeah. the answers in there. It's like, well, no. You look at the. I don't know about that. You look at Jesus's pattern. You know, Richard Rohr is fond of saying that Jesus was asked 150 something questions mm. throughout the four Gospels. He answers something like three of them directly. The rest he either answers with another question, a parable, or some sort of riddle, uh, confusing statement. Uh, and so that's quite a pattern. And then his method of teaching was not direct; it was mm-hmm. subtle and and in story form. So, well, and the beautiful thing too is it's like, well, you need to figure it out. Exactly. Ask the next question, yeah. as one philosopher says. Yeah, get get to know yourself and then start asking yeah. questions. So you live in questions and you surrender answers. And that's a hard thing. That's a hard spiritual growth for many people, especially uh, in this day and age. Uh, but we just need to get past this day and age. I know there's a lot of uncertainty, but that's always been that way. The human race has always had uncertainty. Well, the world has always it, had uncertainty. It's always been this way. Yeah, not even Ask just the, the dinosaurs. <laughs> so, and and I think, well, at least I know for my my generation growing up, there was this idea, sort of like you can you can always come to a definite answer. And the older I've gotten, it's like, well, that's no, it's just not true. Yeah, you, yeah. you'll find yourself in these weird tribal camps. Exactly. Um, 
And, and that's where tradition comes in because that's another word for community. Mm. And, and it's the community that produced the scriptures. The scriptures did not produce the community. And so, so the community is, is where, and, and the community, at least in the Christian uh, origin, started on the day of Pentecost, a group mm-hmm. of scared uh, devotees, de- uh, devotees of Jesus, follow- disciples and followers of Jesus. They were still mourning uh, their friend. Yeah, and they, yeah, they're mourning, they're confused. Crucified. Uh, they, they, they saw him definitely crucified, and then they see these apparitions of him risen and stories, and they're hiding in an upper room, and they're praying, and, and the Spirit descends upon them and explodes in their hearts. That's where the community was born. And then uh, out of that came the scriptures, right. you know, they 100 years later. later, 200 years later. And, um, and so, so you can consult the community. The community is always alive, has always been mm-hmm. living. Uh, and I'm not talking about just an institutional church. I'm talking about the mystical body of Christ. And there are many uh, uh, writings uh, throughout history and, and precedences uh, that have grappled with a lot of questions and a lot of questions that are irrelevant to us now. And so, right. And and uh, maybe maybe if you could take a half step back and and sort of uh, divide up on tribe, this tribal mentality uh, versus. This com- this uh, community mentality because there's definitely a difference. Yeah, and so we, with your your experience, uh, what what would you say separates the two? What are some of the? Yeah, I, I guess in a tribe they're protecting a set of doctrines. Uh, usually they'll use language like, uh, "Well, the church doesn't teach that," mm. or they'll say, "That's not biblical." Uh, they, they're fond of saying that um, rather than saying that's not loving. Uh, they'll say that's not true instead. And, and it's like the scholar, uh, the professor, uh, uh, Amy Jo Levine, I think I mentioned this on another episode. Uh, she was asked, well, what about the truth that Jesus is the only way? And then she responded uh, by saying, uh, uh, the only one preoccupied with truth was Pontius Pilate. And I don't want to be in his camp. <laughs> yeah. And so, so when, when and his, so he was only looking at legal truth, really, right? <laughs> Legalistic ease. And so you can tell if you're in a tribe or if you're in a, a living community, an open community, on the questions that they're asking. Mm. So, so I would say an open community would ask the question. Uh, well, let me say a tribe. Let me go that way. A tribe would say, uh, "Is it right to uh, consort with these kinds of people?" Okay. Certain kinds of people. Is it right for me to even talk to them? And an open community would say, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And the, and the answer, the implicit answer is the, what Jesus said in the, in the Good Samaritan story. Uh, my enemy is my neighbor. Everyone is mm-hmm. my neighbor. And I'm not to be afraid of anyone. Um, one is insular. They're trying to protect the culture of the group. And it's authoritarian. And the other one is egalitarian. Uh, one is they're obsessed with answers that to questions that were never really asked. And the other is continuing to ask questions openly and they're not condemned mm-hmm. or criticized. And it's hard to find a community like that. Well, and I think too, something I would add to that is 
when an outsider approaches a tribe, the tribe tries to get that individual to bend right to whatever the tribe is thinking or doing or yeah, saying exactly. or you know uh larping as you and I talked yeah. about and where the the more open a community is um they're trying to get to know the new individual uh they welcome them they ask them questions they yeah. learn who that person is as an individual, what they've been through, and sh- while sharing the community's thoughts and ideas yeah. with this person, and um, and there's not like a, a sales pitch at the end. No. And uh, and they've and that group has at least the leaders of that group are leaders because they have undergone the discipline, the self discipline, or the Holy Spirit discipline of releasing the need to convert them Hmm. uh, and to do the sales pitch. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a tough thing that takes, you know, uh, a lot of uh, experience and and ass kicking in your life for that to happen. Yeah. Unless, unless I, you know, one, one example I would give of where it might not be that tough is if you had never experienced that peer pressure of trying to convert people. Right. And I'm just thinking of my own experience growing up Catholic. The Catholics in the 90s weren't worried about getting new members. No. Just they keep were, having babies. Yeah, they were running the world. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and then I didn't really have any, any other connection with spirituality or religion for a while, for about a decade. And then I, I found myself in recovery. Um, and my experience with recovery is they're not trying to— they're not trying to convert you. No. If you want to get sober and hang out, that's all the better for the group. Yeah. And if you want to go drink and do drugs and continue the old lifestyle, that's fine too. Yeah, they respect the sovereignty of the individual. Yeah. And so, you know, sort of landing here at Desert Rain was a good fit for me because I never once has have you or anyone else in the community been like, well, you need, you need to convert a couple people this year because... Or you're behind um, on your uh, quota. Your quota. You need to not, go, <laughs> go win some souls. <laughs> it's three years and you haven't converted anyone. No, we're, we're so. lousy at that. We're terrible. We're, so we're bad evangelicals, um, if, if evangelicals at all. Yeah, you know, well, I don't you, think we really are. No, I, I think evangelical in the sense that you just live a certain lifestyle and hope that that example, right? Yeah, fires someone else up about about God or Christ or something like that. And it assumes that God is already doing something in that person. Mm -hmm. They don't need me to go bring Mm -hmm. God to them. I want to bring Jesus to the streets. Well, Well, Jesus is on the streets. Yeah. Jesus has been living there for since, since he was alive in the person that you treated badly. Uh, And that's, I mean, that's another thing in the recovery world is like, um, Oh shit. I don't even know where I was going to go with that one, but, um, Oh, yeah, as far as like a quote of converting people, it's like, you know, oh, no, no, that wasn't even where I was going to go with it. Uh, I'm not getting anyone sober. If I help someone out and, you know, they happen to stay sober for one, two, three, four, five years, uh, that has very little to do with me and probably nothing to do with me. And actually it has to do with them and their relationship with God and how they're walking that that path. Um, yeah. Similarly to like my sobriety is contingent on what am I doing today with my relationship with God? Yeah. 
Um, and so the quotas are silly because I, it, they're God's quotas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever, whatever it might be for for sobriety counts. Um, because a lot of people that I've tried to help a lot more are drinking today and using. You know. Yeah, it's a tough. You know, it's a tough thing getting through this life. <laughs> yeah, right. On so many different levels, and so and and doesn't AA state. In their, I guess, their charter, they grow by attraction, not by promotion. Exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah it's I like one that. Of, so they have 12 traditions. They don't really have a char- charter, mm. but one of their traditions is uh, attraction rather than promotion. Yeah, I really know. like that. And and one of the best ways I ever heard it is that, so my actions, and this they probably say this in Christianity to a certain extent, you can, you can fill it in if that's true, but... When I, if I encounter someone that's an alcoholic or an addict that's still drinking and using and I'm sober, I might be the only encounter that they have with Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so it's like, okay, so it's like love thy enemy, right? Like if there's yeah. someone just totally passed out drunk and being obnoxious at a bar, you know, am I going to turn my nose up to them because I'm yeah. sober? Or am I, you know, going to look at them in a, in a loving way? And, and not that I have to like try to take them to a meeting or anything. Yeah. Like that. That's not yeah, the point. It's not but on you. Yeah. Encouraging, you know, encountering them with love, regardless of what, what it might be. And, um, exactly. So, um, so just to, to sort of shift gears a little bit, um, and I do want to, because I want to kind of go down this idea of how you approach the Bible. Okay. Um, as far as like the literal level, the mythical level, uh, the parabolic level, and then lastly, the the mystical level. Yeah. Um, and so uh, sort of what, what that, what those four different levels mean to you and, and how you've encountered them throughout your life. Sure. You know, how would you? So, I mean, just starting off with the literal, sort of the literal level, because I think that's kind of looked at as like sort of the base level, right? Yeah. So, you know, when you read something like, um, well, let's just start with with Genesis. Mm-hmm. If you're going to read that on a literal level, well, you right off the bat, you have a contradictory story in the Torah of the, of the account of creation. You have two... There's two different stories. Yeah, there's right? two different stories, right. and so, so all all of a sudden you're you're you know, and so then you have to bump up to what's the other a more analytical level or mystic, uh, mythical, allegorical. Yeah, yeah. So myth- so you need mythical. so then you need a deeper level level of scholarship. You're not on the devotional side. You you have to look at some outside sources. Why would the Jews put those two stories together like that? That are obviously contradictory, and then and then you find out well they're priestly sources and there were uh, rabbinic sources that were putting scriptures together. But then you can need to go even deeper than that. And, and you can, and again, you have to go in, into the scholarly realm and you find out uh, really this is a pattern in the Jewish scriptures. And it ends up being, and some scholars would say one of the primary gifts of Jewish scripture, which is uh, this amazing paradox of, like one one would be an example of of the story in first and second Samuel of David uh in one story he's never met Saul the king mm. um becomes his armor bearer and uh or or has never met him was never his armor bearer and and he just he kills Goliath and uh and and ends up in the in the house right. 
in the other one, they totally know each other. <laughs> and so what, what are they saying? Well, one is, one is saying that God uh, was underneath the circumstances and picked David as king. And the other, David, through his own willfulness and shenanigans, mm. Became king, well, which his, is true. His, his humanness, exactly. Right. And so, so one creation account, you have the Creator doing all of this, and the other, you have human beings participating, if not messing it up, sure. but still participation, yeah. uh, and and t- and coming alongside. So, so then you see something that well, that's not just uh, clerical putting together, mashing together texts that had nothing to do with each other. Right, like you're, uh, it's not just uh, shuffling cards yeah, together. Yeah, no, you see a pattern of, of a Jewish theme of paradox of, yes, you need to, to take responsibility for your actions. And yes, underneath it all and all your circumstances and in the chaos, there's the signal of the still small voice. Right, sort of that idea of, of you... You're going to participate, and, and one of the one of the ways I've heard it, it, it was in a different context. It was a uh, one of these uh, new age women, but she said, you're, "You got to part. You're going to participate in life. You don't you don't get out of that. Yeah. Even if you wake up in the morning and you pull the the sheet over your head and go back to sleep, that's the choice of participation yeah. you've made that day. Yeah. Non participation is participation. Right. And as you're saying. There's the God, the God current underneath it all, yeah, running, running through it. So, so you just move from a literal level to a more analytical level, uh, using outside sources, scholarly sources, and and having a conversation, if you will, with Jewish tradition and rabbinic tradition, and you know, and and in and in their tradition, everything's open for questions. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the whole underlying way of teaching Torah is is. Asking questions and and then when they have volumes on volumes, volumes and volumes of, of questions about centuries and centuries. Uh, yeah, it's an amazing tradition. Um, and so, how do you get from there to sort of this uh, parabolic level, and eventually the the mystical, spiritual aspect of of the scriptures and the Bible? Yeah. So then, or at least, how have you gotten there? You know, what, what was yeah. sort of your road through that? Well, I, I kind of went, because of the charismatic Pentecostal route, we kind of just wanted to skip most of that and go straight to the mystical. Mm. So I was kind of trained to do that. So then by the time I was in my late 30s, I started moving away from that a little bit to more scholarly and analytical. Because you had spent so much time yeah, exactly. in the spiritual and mystical So I kind of did it backwards. So now what I do, though, is is the ancient tradition, the monastic tradition of Lectio Divina, of, of taking a, a small passage and, and... And what do you mean by small? Uh, just a, a, like a, a small parable of Jesus or just mm-hmm. a couple of verses of something. Right. And uh, Just for those that aren't familiar with Lectio Divina. Yeah, so it's a four-step process and has its uh, beginnings with origin, but, uh, but I suspect it had a Jewish tradition as well, long before Christians started doing this. And, uh, and, and there's probably a pagan element too. I bet you the, the Greek, philo- Greek and Roman philosophers mm. probably did that with Engaged. text, not, not with Jewish text, but right. with, other. With, yeah, with poetry and other mm-hmm. things. Uh, uh, but for, you know, the last 1500 years, it's been 
formula, you know, it's been formulated into a four-step pro, uh, uh, program, if you will, mm. by the monastic tradition, which is you, you read a text, and that's important because, uh, you know, for, for 1,500 years, Christians didn't read uh, the scriptures. They heard it read uh, mm. at, at gatherings, at mass. And so that's an important thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you read it aloud, you know, preferably with a group of people. And you read it aloud a couple of times with different emphasis. And, or even different uh, people within the group reading it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Different voices. Uh, and hopefully your group is diverse. So these voices, the sound of them come from those different experiences and genders and so forth. Um, so that's the first level. And then the second you would, and, and in between there's silence, you know, you're sitting in silence and prayerfulness mm-hmm. and, um, and usually how long would you say that silence is? Uh, I try to let it linger like at least five minutes between mm-hmm. each stage. Um, depending on the size of the group too, and how many kids are in there and that right. kind of, how many well, dogs, dogs and- are in the group and. And for me, I love, I'm, I'm very, at this point in my life, I'm very comfortable in silence, but I know a lot of people aren't. And so yeah, it's a, the longer the silence goes, I, yeah, you have to ease people in. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just throw them in the deep end of 20 minutes of silence. <laughs> yeah. You're going to go take a, a three day silent retreat. You know, no, don't do that. So, um, so you got the reading aspect of it and then you engage that in silence, you engage silence. Right. And then you go to the second so you read it again, mm-hmm. and then the second is, is meditatio or meditation. And so you just roll the, the, the scripture around in your head. What does this basically mean? What did it mean then to that audience? Who was it written? Who wrote this? Who wrote, and who, was, uh, who were the original uh, adherents to this scripture? Uh, what would it have meant then? And uh, what does it basically mean now? Yeah, what does it mean? Is there a universal? Yeah, and then you can go through those other levels. Is what, what does it literally mean? Is there a literal meaning to it? Um, is there an a- allegorical meaning? Uh, is it more symbolic? Uh, is it you know? And and as we're as we're explaining this out loud, in the actual process, you're engaged in silence again. Right. The yeah. You're doing all of this in silence. Back, yeah. The meditation falls back into silence. Yeah. And then you invite the group to, uh, to, to say a brief sentence of what you think it, it basically means or what's come up in your meditation. Uh, what, and that could be just a one word, mm-hmm. uh, and one that's, word that's, that's risen up in your mind, you know. And that's looked at as prayer, sort of the prayer yeah, aspect it's a of type, it, right? Yeah, exactly. So then again, you engage silence together and, and then you read it a third time and then you engage in the third stage, which is prayer which you're waiting for what the monks would call the prayer of the heart. Mm. Not, not, not the baloney prayers that we usually pray or to impress each other. Right, the memorized yeah. prayers. Memorized or, or even, uh, you know, uh, in the Pentecostal charismatic evangelical world, they, they criticize uh, recited, memorized prayers, but yet they mm. engage in very shallow, same prayer. Dear Father God, we just pray now, <laughs> and they sound like a talking doll. Uh and so they do the, we all do the same thing, you know, and, and so, so that's not forms. the kind of prayer we're talking about. It's not the prayer to impress someone. It's for the one that comes from our bones. Yeah. You want the naked prayer. You want mm, a prayer to come up like by sitting in silence. It's uh, usually a naked prayer is, is a very vulnerable prayer. 
uh, if you will, the living word of Christ has engaged your soul and, and you're undone, you're ruined, and a prayer like that will come up. Um, uh, one, one such prayer came, comes out of the Gospels where uh, a father said to Jesus, uh, uh, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Mm. You know, and, and, and so it's, it's a naked prayer. Right. You know? Um, it, it's like the uh, the alcoholic at the end of a bench screaming into the universe. Yeah. Like, why can't why can't I fucking get sober? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 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 so so a prayer like that, and so 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 then you give the invitation by you know if someone wants to speak that prayer, they can. Mm-hmm. And you know, and it's usually very brief. It's not what we call the intercessory prayer, where you you know long. Long flowing sentences of yeah, you're not laying battling on Satan, people. yeah, right, battling the spirit of abortion over the city, uh, you know, no, it's which which that. has its time and place, yeah, sure it does, but not in this, not context, this context of lectio divina. Yeah, this is listening prayer rather than supplication mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And so then, yeah, again, silence together, and then read the text a fourth time. And you enter into contemplatio or contemplation, which is a silent gazing on the uh, face of Christ. And so you allow the, the, uh, the love that has come from that text, the living word that is in that text, just to simply embrace you. And there are no concepts, there are no words at this point, And you just sit in that silence. Psalm 131 is a great image for that, for that fourth stage, which is I have quieted and stilled my soul mm. like a newborn baby on his mother. And, and, I'm, and I'm sitting here and I'm just gazing up at my mother's face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are no words and there are no concepts. It's just a, a stillness. And that's, that's what you do. And you wrap it up from there. And it's a beautiful thing if you've never experienced that. Well, and it's a beautiful thing because we're right, right about our All our right. end mark. Uh, so yeah, there, there's lots of for anyone who maybe has not encountered or ever even heard of this lectio divina. Uh, could you give them? I mean, I'm sure you could go online, but is there a book maybe that that you know of that has informed your idea around lectio divina? I know I put you on the spot. An acquaintance of mine wrote a book on it. His name is Evan B. Howard, and it's called Lectio Divina. Okay. Uh, but there are there are multitudinous websites mm-hmm. from monastic houses that have put put out. We uh, we haven't put one out on our site. Maybe someday we will. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, but there's yeah. If if you just and what was your friend's name again? Evan B. Howard. Nice from Colorado, yeah. Montrose, Colorado. Yeah, he wrote a book on that. There's uh bunch of, I know I've found a bunch of different websites that have helped me sort of understand and inform yeah. uh, my ability to do Lectio Divina, including yourself. You know, you're, you're, I think you're really the first person that uh, introduced me to the concept of, of Lectio Divina and, and how powerful it's been for you. And, and that's been true for myself. Um, so, yeah, once again, we just want to thank you for, for tuning in to uh, Desert Rain Community Radio um, and, and, uh, our discussion today of, of the Bible and sort of how how it's engaged and shaped our um, beliefs and theology and and walk with Christ. So uh, 
appreciate your time once again. Thank you. Thank you Uh, all for listening. David Morrison. Yep. Thank you, everybody. And uh, my name is Dorian Mason, and we're signing out for the evening.